This is One Hate Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Hit Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard. And joining me today for the 117th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus is, well... Number one, before I introduce you to this great person, I'll say that their best film of 2015 was Magic Mike XXL, which I think may be my best film of 2015 upon reflection. Um, is the editor-at-large of probably one of the best emerging publications about film online, Bright Wall, Dark Room, um, and, you know, is, is one of the big parts of the creative uh, core of that group, including the great Brianna Ashby, who is the artist extraordinaire over there. And she also wrote this line in an absolutely excellent, if you haven't had a chance to read it yet, I'm going to post it as a link in the One Heat Minute post so you can check this out. But an excellent piece on death in the work of Tom Cruise um, and also Free Solo. She said, just in parentheses, it's kind of just like an aside. Let me tell you, (laughs) let me tell you a non-secret. Men are insane. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome the editor-at-large of Bright Wall Dark Room and also a music columnist for WXR, Fran Hoffner. Welcome to One Heat Minute. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> it's great to be contextualized by people knowing I think men are insane. <laughs> well, I just love that line in amongst this great analysis of, uh, like, in a great, amongst a great analysis of, you know, Alex Honnell, who's the you know the subject of Free Solo, I had that same thought many times watching the film. This guy's insane, and it was just really nice reading your piece on those two guys going. No, Tom Cruise might be insane too. Like they're insane. There's there's oh, some, yeah. there's something there's something that's beyond the realm of uh, what should be what, what how normal people should be acting that takes you you know to do Free Solos or to decide that for a movie you need to learn how to do a Halo jump. It's pretty insane. Yeah, it's like writing that essay specifically, I would sort of try to like break down the sort of rationale, rationality and then I would get to a point where I'm like, oh, and they're crazy. That is that is also like a whole other level to it. <laughs> that is that, And look, what, what better with knowing that men are insane than one of the great, uh, you know, sort of one of the great proponents of like men in crisis – um, or damage yeah. masculinity, Michael Mann, and this movie Heat that we've now 117 episodes into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was a great, great addition to all the different ways men are crazy. <laughs> all right, well, we're going to watch 117th minute together. Uh, uh, Fran and I are going to watch it together now. You guys are going to listen along, and then we're going to come back and unpack it. And I'm sure we have lots to say besides the insanity of men here. Um, I, a great minute featuring the amazing Ashley Judd. So take a listen, guys, and uh, we'll back to you in a sec. You're going. I gotta find out if our route got spilled along with every other damn thing. Who did it? Who wasn't there? Dreo. I'll see you at Nate's.
Yeah. Yeah. You still want me? You come down here right now when you get me, Dominic and me. Okay? Okay, baby. Okay. I'll be there in two hours, all right? Okay? All right. God damn you, Chris. God damn you. You're on a plane for Los Angeles. Great. There it is. Yep. There's our minute. There it is. So, Ugh. where to begin? Where do you begin? I did, let's start with one simple thing. Isn't it hilarious that like right now in this movie 1995, Danny Trejo isn't a a Trejo isn't a name that we know. So he's like who that- wasn't there? Trejo. So like when he holds on Trejo there and he's like staring into Val Kilmer's eyes, he's like clearly off the wall on some painkiller drugs. Um, I always just have like a slight chuckle now, just like, God, Treo. Like, who would have thought he would be a massive movie star later on? And it just yeah, feels really and grating. is he, he's not really in the top billing. I'm, I was trying to remember if he's in that series of opening credits. Um, no, he's not. And because I was like, oh, I'm pretty sure that's Danny Trejo, but maybe I'm going insane. Maybe that's not him. But yeah, it's, um, it's very fun to think of this as like an early role for him and that he's just called Trejo. Yeah. He, he was literally a guy who had just gotten out of prison. He did two movies pretty much around, uh, you know, around the same time, back to back. One was the infamous Desperado where he plays the, the man with a tattoo of a lady on his chest who throws knives at Antonio Banderas in this movie. And, Amazing. And, and Michael Mann's like, well, just use your name. It's a cool name. He knew. Yeah, it is a Michael, cool name, Michael, yeah. Michael Mann knew <laughs> from way back then. Mm-hmm. So this is your first time seeing Heat. Let's start there before we yes. dive into this minute. It's my first time seeing Heat. It's going to take a lot of self-restraint, I think, not to just re-watch all of Heat tonight. <laughs> it was sort of finishing it. It just felt so massive and such such a detailed undertaking that I probably just don't even understand it. <laughs> not even like on the level that you do, but just in general, I feel like I need a second time to just have all of these characters wash over me. Um, I was listening to Bilga's episode and I'm sure on multiple episodes, you talk about it maybe feeling Dickensian yes. in a sense, but um, I'm in a master's program right now focusing on fiction. And for the first time in like three or four years, I'm reading a 19th century novel. Yes. Uh, just because like in my professional working life, I was sort of like, mm, I'm done with this. I'm not in school anymore. I'm reading, <laughs> I'm reading t- contemporary American fiction and that's it. Uh, <laughs> so I'm reading this, uh, George Gissing novel called, um, new grub street, which I really like, but I've forgotten the way these 19th century novels will just sort of like follow characters on little errands or journeys. And in the moment you're sort of like, I don't know how this matters, if it matters, you know, if you read like (laughs) the back of um, new Grub Street, sort of just like the plot description, it talks about one character. The first five chapters are about a whole different character. Um, (laughs) So I'm happy that I was like in this mindset of like 19th century sprawling character sort of like universe because it gave me a good entry point for this because I, I very quickly was like got it it's 19th century yeah it's Michael Mann's sprawling Dickensian take it, yeah. except it's all just updated and contemporized 
Yeah, Dickens should have gone to LA. I wonder if he would have liked it. Um, uh, so yeah, that so would I, have been a novel. Yeah, it especially been fun. at that time. Especially at that time. Yeah, um, he, he would have been shot. Let's be fair. At that time, that <laughs> at that yeah. time, LA was slightly more wild. Yeah, it would not have gone well for him. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I had a great time watching it, and I I do feel very just sort of overwhelmed by everything there. Yeah, I, I I totally agree. There's there are some movies that, uh, you know, you see different sort of critical ethos from certain people. It's like they see a film, and sometimes if they are going to file for it, whether it's if if it's a review, it's okay to sort of do that first take and have that very sort of impressionistic and raw. Like this is my first feelings of this movie, um, and then you get other takes. And I think that that's one of the awesome things about Bright Wall Dark Room is that you get people who have like dived into a topic, like they've dived into a movie and they've really worn it. And and, and mm-hmm. there might be multiple viewings. It might be 10 viewings, but it's, it's that, it's that difference between being immersed in the world completely. And like you sometimes read something you're like, someone had to have seen that 10 times to get that. Mm-hmm. Cause I've seen it twice or three times and you're like, I just never even understood it. And then in, in this exercise, this entire exercise is like, the most extreme version of that. It's like every, and trying to get those fresh and new takes from all the different great voices such as yourself are on the show, but it's like continuing to sort of dive in and, and feel out and ask every question about every character. And as I think, as you're studying that 19th century literature, that's a, a massive part of it. It's like you're sort of diving into all that technical stuff about the why and why that, why it works so well. Yeah, absolutely. And what he was also sort of a fascinating exercise in is, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty young. I'm 27. Um, and you know, my film education sort of like really starts in like the late aughts and everything else. I've sort of like gone back and sort of self-taught. And so you watch something like heat and like, I have a pretty good idea of sort of like the De Niro ethos and like the Pacino ethos, but like Val Kilmer is someone who like growing up when I grew up sort of like, I don't have a big reference for, and I've had to kind of go back and self-educate sort of like what was sort of the idea of Val Kilmer. Like my entry point was (laughs) like kiss, kiss, bang, bang, maybe a couple of years ago. Great. And have since had, Oh, which is like an amazing movie. He's so, so good. And, um, but I've had to, you know, like go back and, teach myself that's like sort the, of like that's at the new emergence you hit him at his new peak you know you've had to go yeah. and retroactively go to the dark years and then to like mm-hmm. when he was the hottest actor in the world at the time he did this he did batman doors you know those yeah. times and uh, he was like the hottest guy in the world yeah it's exactly so my like introduction is exactly that sort of like second peak and so i'm like okay so this is before all that he's still very hot <laughs> um <laughs> it's deconstructing that hotness um yeah, and I think he and sort of Ashley Judd have – there's so many interesting um, male-female relationships in this movie and, like, husband-wife relationships, and theirs, to me, is the most compelling, I suppose. Yeah, she's an amazing character in this movie, and she's kind of – so it, it feels like I've been on a vacation away from her because we spent so much time in incredible scenes with her and Neil – um, mm-hmm. uh, that great confrontation, the dinner scenes, and then obviously her scenes with Chris leading up to it and, and being the most, you know, very complicit in her husband's work, so to speak, like mm-hmm. she, she knows what it is, but I just love now being back with her. Um, after all this is just like, you know, you, you had one, she's almost like to him, like you had one job. 
And that job was to go away and do this job and then come home and bring home the bacon. And like the chaos doesn't seem to bother her, but like you didn't come back and that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's so great about her character is she has no sort of delusions about either Chris's job or her affair. Yes. Like the affair is not meant to be the thing that like gets her out. Absolutely not. Evolve this. It's not like an escape tactic. Um, she has no sort of, um, you know, visions of like a life away with Hank Azaria's character. He doesn't say, um, I, I just, I'm offended that Hank Azaria is this guy. Like he's perfect. He's a perfect douche to get pushed around by Vincent Hanna and like being manipulated by the cops here. It has some great moments where Michael T. Williamson puts him in his place, which is just really divine in this movie is there's some of the great moments, but I'm just like, how did you get Ashley Judd? She's beautiful. Yeah. Like she's as yeah. beautiful as anyone. <laughs> she's like savvy and clever and assertive and like gorgeous. What the hell? How did that happen? Hank Azari? Yeah. I need to know. Very, very bizarre. This sort of like, I mean, I guess I haven't seen a ton of him in film, um, my reference point for him as it is with Bird many Cage. people is Simpsons, but yeah, Simpsons and Birdcage is sort of what I know him from and maybe some of his theater stuff too. But, um, yeah, it's not that he can't be wormy. It's, I just, I'm like, Oh, I don't know if I want him to be this little worm. Uh, <laughs> and I think it sort of goes against, um, I don't know. It goes against my expectations of affair storylines Yeah, to have I don't know, two people who seem so, (laughs) I don't know, disenchanted with their own affair that they're having. Like, he doesn't really want to be held accountable for it. I don't think she really does either. And and what's funny is he doesn't seem like the guy that is okay that she brings Dominic. You know what I mean? Like, as, as a character, it's not this, like, wooing love story, whatever. It's, like, nasty hotel transient he lives out of state you know it's just coming in you know she's she's although although she's making the relationship more complicated it's not like she's um she hasn't chosen someone who just lives across this you know across town or something that's gonna basically be a target to be killed by neil like it's a guy who's flying in and out of la pretty frequently so it's like yeah it's got this whole other layer of i'm not I'm not getting too attached to you. Yeah. And her sort of tearful, tearful phone call with him feels a little bit like Neil's conversation with Chris of just like, got to find another out. And she similarly is like, I guess I have to find another out. Yes. Uh, he, like, sorry, this is the plan B and it's the only plan B. Yeah. Like this is the absolute last resort. I actually think that Charlene is smart enough as a character and Judd's portrayal of her has that level of depth that she would have had it in the back of her mind that he's an out, but mm-hmm. would have net as you, as you perfectly sort of nailed their friends. Like it, it's not a, it's absolutely not the thing you wanted to do. And just yeah. like Neil is not wanting to have to go to Trio's house, which we sort of stumble into the final fleeting sort of seconds of um, his entry into Trio's house now to sort of see if they're outs blown. But like yeah. she knows, you know, with Chris with Chris being shot, she knows her out's blown. 
she's already assumed yeah. that it's done and she's like, all right, I've got to find another way out of this situation because the cops are coming yeah. for me. And I think it's so crucial that we never get like um, any kind of like love scene between them. We sort of are introduced no. to this affair as he's leaving. It's like it doesn't really matter what their affair is like at all because it doesn't matter that much to the two of them. <laughs> yes, that's a great, that's a great, yeah, it doesn't matter to them. Yeah, there's no. I think a you know like a lesser director I think would have been like ah let's just see him have sex why not like so so the audience knows and it's just sort of like we know if we see him leave a motel room what is going on and that we don't see the sex is like that's that's it it doesn't matter it's not important Mm -hmm. yeah it's not it's not important to the film what's so much more important is that Neil's the kind of guy who wants her to have sex with this other person, isn't going to show up and stop it halfway through. That's the other, that's the other lesser director move is to have Neil break them up. Mm-hmm. But instead he's like, no, he's going to like have it out with her when she's ready to clean up and go home. Yeah. What are you doing? Why are you doing yeah. this? You know, he wants to have her all of her attention. Doesn't want any of the drama. He sort of silently wants to go into that room and have it out with her behind closed doors yeah and also shows i think like neil's level of respect for her and neil's level of respect for chris that it would be this sort of like why are you doing this yes versus just like i don't want just in sort of like violently stopping it um instead it's just sort of like what is happening um it doesn't make a lot of sense, which is, I think, what makes it a compelling side affair. <laughs> yes, it is very, it is very compelling, very compelling. One thing I wanted to talk about because we touched back on like Val Kilmer peak hotness. This movie does something better than you know many movies, but it it really in that frightening heist scene when people get shot or hurt. Like, I feel like in other movies, you know, sort of more disposable action fare. When someone gets like a, which gets clipped with a bullet, it's all good. But like yeah. Chris is messed up. Yeah. And so I was, I felt certain he was dead, which I sort of never do in action movies anymore. When someone, I'm just like, Oh, someone can hmm, take three bullets <laughs> and they'll probably be fine. Which is like, I've read, you know, enough on sort of like, gun violence to be like no one gunshot wound like fucks you up pretty badly (laughs) and this does this does make the um the reality of gun violence um very tangible yes like his his him being there and getting shot in the like essentially like in the clavicle in his collarbone like he's fucked up and they're going to a doctor who's inexperienced with obviously wounds they're just going to some you know some guy, you know, Jeremy Pip, the you know, great Jeremy Piven, when Jeremy Piven was still losing his hair um, 20 years ago. Uh, but like, yeah. Oh, like, is that Jeremy Piven? <laughs> the doctor is Jeremy Piven. Oh, wow. <laughs> Evanston, Illinois native, very close to where I grew up. Oh, well, there you go. The connection. <laughs> we had to we had to disown him in recent years, but <laughs> always happy for a Chicagoan. And look, Michael Mann, the, the quintessential Chicagoan, right? I know, I know, and that's why it's such an oversight on my part to be so sort of behind on his filmography. It's because I try to, I try to root for the Chicago movies, but yeah. Well, you, you had to have started with Thief, and then then you can go to all the others after that. Yeah, of course. Um, um, but yeah, no. So in that scene, like someone who's inexperienced patching up like such a gnarly wound, mm-hmm. and just doing their best 
to keep him alive. He's completely just out of it. He looks at he looks like a mess. He's sallow. He's 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 his colors drained from his face, and that's what really strikes me in the scene is also that he's kind of slurring and out of it because he's just dosed. He doesn't get it, and Neil's very crisp and clear with like who's not here. Yeah, and I think you know just the way that sort of like you know B action movies are right now. It's pretty clear when someone's gonna live or die. Yes, and what I loved about this was just the uncertainty I had up until its final minutes. Yes, sort of like who is and is not in danger, and I think that scene also between Neil and Chris at the hospital or at the doctors is compelling because I think both Neil and at least myself as a viewer is like pretty convinced that Chris could die, and that would be totally plausible. Oh yeah, um, I don't think there's like, any. I don't think there's any doubt for Neil that Chris might die. So then he's like even more keen at that moment. It feels his most vengeful is like, I'm going to go find out what the hell Treo did to make this happen. Absolutely. And I think it also, when, when Chris says, you know, like he's not going without Charlene, it's like Neil is willing to give him sort of the benefit of the doubt in that case. Cause he's like, he's dying. I guess I got to let him believe that she can still like come with I'm not going to fight him on this in this moment. Yeah. It's it's like the salve that you would have to a friend who is dying. You're not going to argue with them. Okay. Yep, she can come. Yeah. Like well, I'm not yeah. gonna, I'm not going to There's no arguments here. Yep, no problem. Mhm. Because yeah. you're already messed up anyway, and so it's very unlikely that you're actually going to live through this. Yeah, so you might yeah, you might as well believe we can we can still pull this off to some extent. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah yeah it's that it's that it's that great there's a and it's that sort of um there's a lot of in the po- in the sort of postscript of the heist as we're seeing all these reaction shots and the recovery shots and the cops doing their thing um there's just a like it's a pretty relentless pace after this heist because they go in first thing in the morning and and then we're heading into the night but it's the fallout is real like i i I love that in this movie that the fallout is real not only in the gun violence not only in the potential of an out but just every it's all of it together it's like everything that's colliding here is like this heist was gnarly and all the cops are scrambling to figure out what the hell went down especially because they thought they had these guys. Um, they thought they had these yeah. guys under surveillance. So the cops are scrambling to do whatever they can do. But, you know, that, that, that one step ahead is about to happen. Um, and, and the whole Wangro loose end is really going to come back and bite Neil in the, in the coming scenes, which is a, a whole other dimension of the movie. But it's just this... <laughs> yeah, it truly is. It's a whole other dimension of the movie that we, we're not going to touch on too much. But I'd be interested to hear what you think of Wangro because this is a first-time viewing. Yeah. Um, Wayne Grow. God, what to say? Uh, I want to be like, what a truly random thing to include in this. Um, but it doesn't not work for me. It's such a, it's such an audacious detail to have a serial killer as a pretty minor side character, all things considered. (laughs) Yes. Um, like I think as someone who has seen, enough action movies i'm sort of familiar with like the trope of maybe the new guy in the heist team who's a little too sensitive 
or a little too trigger happy who puts the job at risk. I was sort of like, okay, it's one of, it's one of these. And then I think the, the reveal of Wayne grow as a murderer also recontextualizes that first heist where he's sort of like, this guy's fucking with me. And it's like, he wanted to kill a guy that I think, I think you're, you're, you're so right there that Mm -hmm. part of that, he he was probably, you know, um, there's that great, it's, it's, it's a great, um, it's great in its technical, the the technical thing, the the subject matter is not great, which is the, there's that cut to a bottle top being cracked just as he's cracking a prostitute's neck. Um, yeah. And he's sitting in the bar and he goes, I'm a cowboy. And so I, I think you nailed it as like, it does recontextualize everything that he does in the first half because when he says I'm a cowboy, he's used to going in there and shooting. And mm-hmm. he goes and works with a crew whose absolute last resort is shooting. They're going clinically, they blow with a shape charge, they block the police, they're in and out in under a minute, you know, under two minutes, mm-hmm. and they don't want a single shot to be fired because it just means more heat for them. And so for yeah. him, he's like, oh, we're going to get out of here effortlessly. I haven't really had to do anything. I've hit like one guy and I've been scolded. Mm-hmm. And that's that sort of surging like desire for him to kill something <laughs> means that he just yeah. makes it up in his head. And you get to see that little trance moment where he's like, you want to fuck with me? And the guy's like staring at him and he can't hear a freaking word. And I always wonder in that moment where you see the guy staring down the barrel of the camera, like it's this great moment in this authentic film where it dives into the completely subjective, like you're in Wayne Gross head and this guy's like, like like staring at you, like daring you to shoot him, but it's not really what's happening. It's what Wayne grows seeing. And you get to look inside the psychopath's head for just like a split second. Yeah. And I just love sort of, I love the look of him. Yes. The look is so compelling and so messy and so grotesque in such a specific way. (laughs) Like, I think it's very fitting that everyone in um, Neil's crew is very, Like clean cut, and I know. Oh, have I lost you, friend? Um, do a job without something going wrong, and up until you know it goes wrong, sort of out on the street afterwards. But the whole time they're in the bank, it's absolutely perfectly choreographed. Oh yeah, and you can. And you can see sort of like what they expect to happen every time because they're just so good at this. And so for Wayne Grow, who's, you know, a self-proclaimed cowboy, it's all about the chaos and the taking and this sort of, I don't know. Cowboys to me are so like imperialist. So I'm just like, oh, they're just like gross imperialists. Um, and you can just see that in sort of all his, his mannerisms. Yes. And he's... Um... You can see it in his mannerisms, and also it's there's a certain flash. You know, there's that 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 f- the flashiness. Whereas mm-hmm. everything about Neil's crew is like, keep it together. You know, gray suits, overalls, masks. You know, even yeah. with Chris, tie your hair all back so that people can't see. You know, that you've got see that you've got the long hair, or if you do have the long hair, it's all tied back so it's you're all looking very pulled together. You know, Michael Torito. Mm-hmm. You know, Tom Sizemore is all like you know very close-knit cut hair 
And you get Wayne Grow and he's got this flashy, flowing, sort of balding, mullety, long hair, Kevin Gage um, there yeah. and, and, and just all the tats up to his neck and everything like that. So he's got everything there, all those identifying markers that Neil definitely doesn't want to have. Yeah, absolutely. The idea of the being both balding and having a mullet is so audacious. Um <laughs> That there has to be more beneath the surface there. I should have known. I should have known way earlier on. <laughs> that, that should have been the trigger. For someone yeah. to be as audacious to have a, to be balding and to have a mullet, this, there's yeah. more beneath the surface here. I was like, this can't just be a 90s look that I've <laughs> willfully chosen to not know about. Now, speaking of a movie set in Chicago, so just interested because, you know, you're – you know, I, I'm I'm a little bit older than you. I'm 33, um, mm-hmm. and I similarly probably a few years earlier had a, a my my filmic education started because my brother worked um, uh, worked for a, 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 a DVD and video distributor in Australia. And he used to get time code video cassettes, like when he finished high school. So he finished high school in like 1992, um, and uh, oh sorry, 1994. And um, he would bring home time code video cassettes of everything that came out then. So you can imagine he brought home like the entire Quentin Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez, Kevin Smith, like that Miramax Hollywood era. Like, and Mm -hmm. so I, I feel like my film education started there and I watched everything, including, you know, it was around the time of heat. So like you watch everything from there and then you sort of retrofit and you come back. So I'm just curious for you is watching something like a Chicago set movie, like the dark Knight. Mm-hmm. Do you see all of the heat comparisons to the dark Knight, or at least Chris Nolan's fascination with it? Is that something that ever oh, crossed your mind when you're watching it? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It was, impo- it was impossible not to watch this and be like, I have to rewatch the dark Knight. I'm actually thinking about rewatching the dark Knight tonight uh, because <laughs> um, it wears its influences. So on its sleeve. Um, I mean, I sort of, I mean, even just from like the William Finkner, <laughs> Finkner yes. like inclusion, it feels like such a, a beautiful and obvious wink now to have him in that, opening bank heist and similarly Wayne grow sort of the chattiness of Wayne grow in that opening heist is so reminiscent of whatever, you know, eventually assassinated Joker henchman won't stop talking during that opening heist. Um, yeah, it was really, it was really startling. And I had known this, I had known that dark Knight was sort of like Nolan doing Batman if Michael Mann had done Batman, but obviously not having half of that equation, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like left um, some blankness. But but even the idea of having sort of like your hero and villain constantly in conversation with each other and having some kind of mutual admiration, if not respect for what the other is trying to do, I think really, um, I don't know, really contextualize the dark night for me. And it's like, as I, as I get older, I feel like I see the dark night as less and less of a Batman movie. It's barely a Batman movie minus the fact that it is Batman, but <laughs> like it is this very kind of old fashioned action saga. Absolutely. All, all of these characters, you know, abstractly, I'm always like, ah, it's Batman, it's Joker, it's Harvey Dent. But that movie, too, also has all these, like, weird little side plots, you know, dueling mobs, 
different money jobs being pulled over on everyone. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's hard not to think about Nolan and dark Knight. And I, I love Nolan. I have, I, I know Nolan every couple of years. We love to relitigate if Chris Nolan is good or bad, <laughs> but I'm all in on Nolan. I think Nolan's great. I'm in on, I'm all in too. It's so, it's look, and I don't, um, I don't begrudge Nolan for being deeply influenced by Michael Mann and Heat. In fact, I think mm-hmm. he's made the best, the best Heat homage or Heat remake that could have ever been made. He made it, and it was like yeah. one of the highest-grossing movies and probably one of the most popular movies ever, ever. Mm-hmm. Like undeniably amazing movie, universally appreciated and loved. The, the highest-rated comic book movie across every conceivable metric, whether it's Rotten, mm-hmm. Rotten Tomatoes, you know, Metacritic, box office, whatever. You count, count it all, it pretty much is in the top five or top ten of every every one of those lists. But I, but I think exactly for the reasons that it gets, it gets the great having a, a wonderful tension between the, the person who's pursuing and the, the person who's being pursued and this sort of mad affair that he makes really overt, but also that he fleshes out a city. You know, Gotham City feels like Chicago, I would imagine. Yeah. But it's like it's it kind of doesn't doesn't toil too much in the um, in in racial structures as much as class structures in his version of Gotham yeah. City. Um, um, in both Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, particularly, and then yeah, like classes rife through rises right it's, it's all about it and it's so overt um in that but it's um class struggle but it's yeah i think he i think he 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 did precisely what he needed to do to make a heat remake without making heat just like inception yeah. is like one of the best bond movies that was never a bond movie like it's uh, like it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's the same sort of same sort of thing yeah Oh, I'm so I live in New Jersey, but just sort of like right outside of New York City. And in the last month or something, someone implied to me that Gotham is supposed to be New York. And I almost had just like a full on meltdown (laughs) as a a Chicagoan and as sort of a fan of like the Nolan Batmans. I was like, Gotham is Chicago. (laughs) Like, I don't, it's set there. I mean, Dark Knight Rises is not set in Chicago and is also kind of all over the place, like geographically um, influence wise. But I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like Gotham is Chicago. (laughs) Do not try to take this away from me. It's (laughs) it's all we have is the, one of the worst comic book cities. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the, the, the original Gotham was, I think it was a mashup. It was like New York. If it had Prague architecture, like pretty much like it was like that, that was the, the original thing. But I think Chicago's grown into, like it, it's grown into the Batman city. Yeah. New York doesn't feel like a city for Batman. Chicago just will always have that kind of 1920s, 1930s ease, like crime history to it that I think makes it so perfect for all these, I don't know, retro y kind of crime sagas. Like that was like, I don't know. It's so it baked into its history and its architecture yeah. that it will feel that way to me forever. Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, because we're... And look, I absolutely love this digression onto Batman, so thank you, France, so much. But um, I just <laughs> wanted to say, just as, just as an aside, but I think, yeah, like, there's something about the energy of, like, picking a setting that, like, is doing something that is almost, like, unquantifiable for a movie. Like, what Heat does with L.A., in the sprawl yeah. and in all these disparate weird locations in LA that are so un Hollywood 
And then what The Dark yes. Knight as an example does with all those things that are so quintessentially Chicago, like this baked in sort of 1920s architecture that kind of reflects that, you know, the 1930s origin of the character. It's just doing something that's adding something that that yeah. I'm sure that Nolan and his amazing production designers and, and all those technical like craftspeople who would have said, we want to shoot it here because it echoes this or et cetera, that, that, um, it's sort of doing all that stuff that is priceless to like a movie and helps it stand up in so many more different and implicit ways than something that's really overt. Like, so that's why I think that, you know, that's why I think uh, that's why I like the look of Chicago the most, you know, but, yeah. it, but, but when they're as Gotham city, but then they're like, Oh, we need a stadium. Let's shoot it in Pittsburgh. You know, yeah. oh, we, we need, we need some bridges. Let's shoot that bit in New York. You know, yeah, um, you definitely. know, it's like, it's like, it's, we need to stitch, stitch other cities together to do what we needed to do in um, what we needed, would have, yeah. would have needed in the Chicago look. And, and then they still look for that. They're still looking for that Chicago look everywhere. Yeah. And I think sort of when I think about, you know, blind spots, I'm trying to sort of fill in with my film background. I think even more than sort of like Michael Mann is I haven't seen a lot of L.A. movies. Mm. And I think it also, um, you know, I didn't go to L.A. for like a, a period of my life I probably went for the first time seriously like five years ago and I go once a year because I have friends and I have work stuff out there every now and then but it does have this immense sprawl that only some LA movies really bake into the narrative um I was sort of bemused at how often they're in helicopters in heat. And I'm just like, yeah, it's a huge city. And if you have to get around quickly, I think that is probably the only way to do it is to be in a helicopter. Yeah. And you're not, you're not going to want to contend with the traffic, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the great LA movies and Michael Mann does another one with collateral coming up. You know, he's, he's driving around all night, essentially in downtown. Like there's one or two yeah. excursions, but for the most part, it's just navigating the, the cross-sectional map of downtown, which still takes time. It still takes a yeah. shitload of time because it's a big, sprawling city, even though it's, you know, 40 miles. So in a helicopter, it takes three minutes to get from, you know, where you want to go to, you know, point A to point B. But in that, in that, it's, it's, um, there's a big sprawl. And, in and, in, in, in Sydney, Sydney and Oz, where I am, it's, it's a similar thing. It's like the distance, the actual distance is not far, but the way that, this traffic sprawls through this town. It's like everywhere takes a long time to get to. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, I just was sort of, you know, I think people, it's become kind of a joke to be like, ah, the setting is sort of an additional character in this movie, but heat, heat has to take place in LA. It's an LA story. Yeah. Um, it's sort of interacting with all the sides of that city that are not what people are used to seeing or want to see when they think about um, what's there. Yeah, most definitely. So finally, when you're watching Heat for the first time, as we're approaching Treo, do you feel like Treo's betrayed him? Uh, no. Not not in the slightest for me either. I, I like, it, And I hadn't really connected that... Wayne Grow would have gotten the information from Treo at that point. Like it's sort of those weird things where like you now that I've watched this movie countless times. I don't actually even know what the count is anymore. But like I remember at the time, I never thought for a second that it was Treo. 
Like I, you always yeah. have Wangro in the back of your mind, but you're like Treo. Neil's doing the right thing. It's like Neil's doing the right thing because he is literally going, who wasn't here? Who knew every other detail? Who knew that we were going to be in there at this time? We dumped all of the cops. Who possibly could have flipped? Who wasn't here? And so he's doing the right thing. He's going through his methodology in his head. But when you're there and it's like Wayne Grow, I, I love the reaction that we don't get to see in this minute. We're going to talk more about in the in the, in the coming minutes um, with mm-hmm. another guest on the show. But it's like those moments of like Wayne Grow. And you're like, yeah, man, the guy you missed <laughs> way yeah. earlier in this movie with his, uh, as you called it, with his imperialist um, and uh, audacious style um, with mm-hmm. the balding and the mullet is coming back to haunt you. Yeah, and I don't know if it's because I just have this, you know, 2019 image of Danny Trejo where I'm just like, you know, I trust him. I don't think he, <laughs> he's a hero. <laughs> um, so I don't actually buy this. Whereas, like, at the time, I think he's maybe easier to project upon. But, no, I don't I don't really see that as much of a – I don't see the betrayal. No, me neither. Look, um, Fran, I just want to say thank you so much. Um, oh, thank for, you for being a part of One Heat Minute. This has been a blast, guys. Fran Hoffner, editor at large, Brightwall Darkroom. So, if you're a music fan and you're, uh, you want to read our music columns, it's WQXR. Um, um, and if you mm-hmm. go to her site, which I think is Fran Hoffner. Dot FYI, am I right? FYI, yeah. Dot FYI, mm-hmm. which I loved. I was like, I discovered that in uh, in preparation for the show. But Brightwall Darkroom, an amazing publication. Her stuff is great. Fran, thank you for taking the time to watch Heat for the first time and then to come onto yes. the show to talk about it. Yes. Thank you for giving me a real excuse finally. <laughs> um, this has been so much fun. I love Heat. Oh, look, I can't wait. I'm going to stay in touch with Fran. And if she continues to watch Heat and go back and revisit it, I might see if I can sneak her in to one of the later episodes. There are only wow. now, as we have 100 and 17, that means, holy dooly, there are 53 episodes to go. Home stretch. Home stretch. Absolutely the home stretch. <laughs> I never thought it would come to this. So, guys, thank you so much for listening um, to One Heat Minute. You can find Fran on Twitter. She gives fen- phenomenal Twitter. I didn't say that in any of her introductions or her wrap-up, but oh, phenomenal wow. Twitter. Thank so you so fo- much. So, follow Fran on Twitter. Um, I'm Blake Howard. Um, at OneHeatMinute.com is where you can find me. If you want to find me on Twitter, it's at BlakeIsBatman. Um, but as always, mail at OneHeatMinute.com if you want to add anything. And now that it's the 117th episode, I got a wonderful email. And you talked about Val Kilmer at the beginning of the show, Fran. So, I'm going to actually read this email because I think that you would deeply appreciate it. So I went to sleep great. last night. This was not in my inbox. And this morning it was. It's a, it's a great story. So I'm not sure if I can say who it is exactly. So I'm just going to say Adam. Adam is a screenwriter now, but was an actor. And he sent me this note. Hey, Blake. Love the podcast. Thank you very much, Adam. I'm a TV writer living in LA and have been similarly obsessed with heat from a young age. Random story, but I used to be an actor and I had an opportunity to be Val Kilmer's stand-in back on back in 2007. It was called Columbus Day. Sadly, despite an awesome script, it didn't totally come together. Anyway, I would hound him for heat stories. And my favorite was that leading up to heat when he was filming Batman... Michael Mann encouraged him to carry around a loaded 38 in his pocket throughout the day to get the feel, the spirit of what it was to be a guy like Chris. And if I'm recalling correctly, it scared the hell out of the costume department on Batman when they didn't find it in and out of the wardrobe. 
How badass is that? Keep it up. Um, <laughs> keep it up. I came to the podcast late. I'm only at episode 39. Thanks for your time, Adam. Adam, that is one of the greatest emails I've ever received in my life. <laughs> in my whole life. Michael, that man. is real. That is like perfect men are insane canon. <laughs> so perfectly... Michael Mann is insane. Please carry around a Lotus 38. Poor Joel Schumacher filming Batman Forever and his costume department with their bat nipples are terrified of the gorgeous Val Kilmer rocking around with a Lotus 38 when he's just behind the scenes. I love this. Fran Hoffner. We told you at the beginning of the episode that she said that men were insane. That is the perfect email to end this episode. Guys, thank you so much for listening to One Heat Minute. We'll catch you on another episode of One Heat Minute just around the corner. And if you just want to be the spirit of the person like in Michael Mann's movie, just walk around with a loaded 38. <laughs> thank you, Fran. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was so much fun. I'm glad you I'm glad you're a 